This is Fine, episode 1.9, Sons of Autarky. Hi, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite pet theories, autarkic patriarchal white labor. So what is that, you might ask? I think it's best explained as sort of a story, a story that uh, I, I will tell, Arlie Hotchild style, about a guy who we can call Jimmy. And I think he'll be a very recognizable figure. And then I, I think we'll sort of go and talk through a number of different articles and, and research which support why things aren't so good for Jimmy anymore. So Jimmy grew up in the 1960s. Jimmy believes that it's right for a man to take care of a family, and that's one of the things that gives him the most pride. He thinks that there are types of work that are typically done by women in women's work, um, which he doesn't regard at all as less good than men's work. In fact, he just thinks that he can't do them. He thinks that uh, they require skills that he doesn't have, and he might think of men doing them as slightly soft, even though he actually regards women who do them um, with a great deal of respect. Jimmy has a job that he, uh, where he works substantially with his hands, where he doesn't like his boss. And in fact, many of his resentments are of people who don't do the type of work that he regards as good work or noble work. Um, not that they can't support families with their work, but he regards professional labor. Doctors might be shysters, quacks. You know, he feels like what sort of proves um, honesty is sweat on your brow. And Jimmy also uh, has a sort of set of beliefs about the proper place. There are certain jobs that are that do require hard work, but which are traditionally done by minority men. And Jimmy doesn't regard those jobs as bad. Again, it's similar to women's work, but Jimmy wouldn't want himself or his kids to do those work. In fact, he may he may describe some of those jobs when he's telling his kids about why they need to actually work hard so that they don't have these types of jobs, like, you know, so you don't end up like a janitor. And so this is Jimmy. And I think Jimmy's life and the reason that Jimmy's are increasingly not working out of the workforce and Jimmy's kids are not working out of the workforce is, I think, a, a greater political explainer of where we are today than a lot of other narratives that have just been, I think, about the white working class, for example, with uh, white men without college educations that don't have access to, I think, this sort of deeper narrative that ties in this idea of familial support and especially sort of coding as certain types of work as soft or certain types of work as being primarily minority dominated. So that's APWL in a nutshell. And I guess the... Um the origin story of this of this theory was uh, something that you wrote about in response to an article by Chris Arnaud, uh, who's this um, journalist and photographer who has been sort of documenting a lot of uh, what we might call Trump country. You know, he drew this distinction between what he called sort of like front row and back row kids, referring to a kind of like academic hierarchy that exists in school in schools. Um, and, you know, try to explain the divide that way. And, you know, your suggestion was that this this theory was a better explanation for the for the political phenomena we see than than this front row back row divide. That's right. And in particular, it's because his description doesn't explain, I think, two important things. Um, the first is that there are a lot of so-called back row kids in America who are persons of color and poor and were disproportionately Clinton voters. In fact, among uh, non-white women without a college degree, I think that the vote share may be higher than 80%. Um, and they were and they, that's a democratic base. And so it feels weird to sort of 
disentangle, you know, his front row, back row distinction, which he uses to explain this political split, itself has this other political split within it. The other thing is that a lot of front row kids, as he calls it, you know, white, wealthy, college educated, um, that's also sort of the base of the Republican Party. So I, I think that his analysis has, I think, a lot of human interest, and I think there's some interesting narrative power in it, but I think it's just very incomplete or non-descriptive of the sort of political divide that we actually have. There's been a series of articles tracking what I think is sort of what I think you've taken to sort of be a kind of uh, a set of uh, supporting evidence for uh, for this theory, which has been run in the New York Times. Uh, it's called the Upshot, so it's kind of a um, I don't know a numbers focused, if you will, uh, successor to I guess Five Thirty Eight or something like that. So there's been a, a number of articles in the Upshot about sort of what is happening with men who are out of the workforce and why are they not taking jobs that are available instead of sort of pining for the jobs that are no longer available, manufacturing, coal mining, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, we could almost call today's show um, also sort of the Claire Kane Miller beat. I, I really want to sort of cite her, um, much like, uh, you know, Sarah Cliff at Vox, a sort of healthcare uh, expert. I think um, Claire Kane Miller at The Upshot has run a series of articles uh, reproducing the the work of a couple of economists and social scientists, and, and I think we'll, we'll reference them. Um, you know, uh, labor economists like uh, Kruger and Card and some sociologists and psychologists, people like like David Deming. But the basic big picture in each of her stories and, and the underlying academic research is exactly what Jerry described. Jobs increasingly um, are sort of filtered on two axes. So there's one that you may have heard of, and I think we're all familiar with, which is sort of, there are fewer jobs in the middle. If we divide jobs in terms of having low-skilled jobs, high-skilled jobs, and middle-skilled jobs, there's been a hollowing out of the American economy. And that, that I think, is pretty evident. Some of that's because of automation. Um, some of that is a you know, greater return to uh, education for these higher-skilled jobs. And so that, I think, is something that, that again, people are, are fairly familiar with. It, it's, it's been harder for the middle class, and there's, and there's been a source of inequalities from this deviation. But what I think is really surprising when you go into it is there's another axis of, of this division, which is just as stark as this middle de-skilling, which is on gender. So there are some jobs which have gone up remarkably so in terms of their female share. And uh, these jobs are not typically being taken by men, even though that's where economic advancement may be taking place. So if you look at women, um, their employment goes down in middle skill jobs like everyone else, but they move to a number of high skill jobs. If you look at men, their employment goes down in middle skill jobs and A, disappears. So more men are just out of the workforce and B, more of them go to lower skill jobs. So I, I think there's this real great gender rotation going on underneath the employment story. So this, when I, when I was when I was reading up on the material and thinking about the initial formulation of this theory, the th the thing that interested me was the the great degree of social construction that's uh, embedded in in this because you know we have this image of certain jobs are male, certain jobs are female. You know it happens to be entirely historically contingent on a particular sort of set of modes of production that came into being in around two hundred years ago. There's no, like, if you just look at it, there's no particular reason why, for example, being a, a care worker or something like that should be any less respected than, than being a machinist, right? But we still have this overwhelming notion that's, you know, built into a lot of uh, social assumptions that there are certain jobs that are, like, considered, quote-unquote, manly jobs. And if you are not in one of those professions, then you are somehow 
less of like you're less of a man, right? And so that is obviously, I think, a you know, a deeply harmful uh, thing to project onto people because when you find yourself unable to get employment uh, in in one of those professions, it's not just a question of well, okay, I'm compromised financially. It's like you're compromised in terms of your identity, right? Your identity cannot be carried out to the extent that the society expects it to be. Right. And there there are a couple fascinating implications of this. So one, and most dishearteningly, when actually when women move into a former male-dominated job and feminize that job, wages drop. Um, and there was an example of actually, funny enough, camp counselors. So camp counselors used to be a very male job. Um, relative wages, that's become a predominantly female job, have dropped by half. Another job on the flip side, when men enter a profession, um, and I think one of the most interesting ones is actually a computer programmer. And, you know, as we all saw from Hidden Figures, you know, this, this actually used to be a somewhat lower status job. Uh, there were a lot of um, a lot of the early women at NASA were, were involved in computer programming. And this increasingly became a, a higher status job that men moved into and then wages increased um, to the point now, actually, where there's a, obviously a great deal of gender discrimination. So as Jerry notes, none of these things are fixed. There's not a real... You know, we didn't evolve to say, oh, you know, janitors are men, but house cleaners are women, and therefore janitors make a 22% wage premium. Like, that's that's a really weird and artificial thing. And what's really painful about it is that artificial divide, because of deep narratives, like the one I was sharing at the beginning of the pod about Jimmy, actually then cause men who are out of work to not take those jobs. Um, and I think I think one of the, the most interesting things is that the men who do end up taking the lower status jobs that are available often in feminized work end up usually actually being people of color. So there, there's a, you know, one of these interesting things about the diversion in uh, male labor and especially white male employment prospects is that um, these lower status jobs are, are literally beneath white men in, in a sort of a funny way. And then, and then of course, the men who do end up taking these job openings tend to be men of color. I wanted to say actually something about uh, the computer programming angle because um, I was anticipating that this might come up and I was doing some research because I had seen some really interesting numbers uh, about this and I want to uh, make them make them known. Uh, these numbers were compiled from the NCES 2013 Digest of Education Statistics uh, by a guy named Randy Olson, who's a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And he had this great chart, which we'll link to in the show notes, about like the percentage of female college graduates in, in a field over, over a span of time. And when you start looking at computer programming, actually computer programming or yeah, computer science, I guess it's labeled here, starts off in the, the plot starts off in 1970 with something like, you know, only a few percent of women being awarded degrees in computer science. And it increases actually very, very quickly over the, over the span of 15 years. In 1985, it hits an all-time high of something like 35%. So 35% of degrees awarded to women uh, in 1985, computer science. And then it just falls off a cliff. And it, fall, and it falls off a cliff and it keeps falling. Like, it just, you look at this graph and it just looks like a hill. Like, a, you, go, you go up and then you come back down. There's like a little plateau uh, around the 1990s, and then it just comes down again. Computer science did not change as a discipline from 1985 to 1990, nor did it really change from 1985 to 2010. And what's interesting is that, like, for example, math and statistics continues going up and then, like, plateaus and slight decline. Physical sciences continues going up, 
has a plateau basically around like 40% or whatever it is. So it's not like women are incapable of doing those jobs, but something is going on in computer science where, you know, women are systematically being driven out of it. And I think that that phenomenon where men enter a profession and they, you know, it turns out to be quite lucrative, they end up squeezing a lot of the female workers who were in that profession before. They've squeezed them out. Which, you know, which is a persistent problem. There was an Atlantic article about why Silicon Valley is so terrible to women in uh, this last month's Atlantic. And I think it got a lot of those uh, issues. But anyway, those are some like numbers that I think are just incredibly stark. Like you just don't expect that to see that happen. And I think people don't quite understand like that the history of, of the, that statistics. Like they think that, oh, 15 percent or whatever it is now, that's like how it should be. But that's not true. Right. And would have been particularly surprising to those women in the 70s, many of whom didn't have degrees in computer science, who made up the bulk of the sort of uh, programmers, right? Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about I don't know about the bulk, right? Like, I think, you know, in some ways, computer, what, what changed was not so much computer science as a practice, but, but computer science as a profession, if that distinction makes sense. I think a lot of those people who were involved in, like, especially the early days of NASA's like computer programs, like those people were people who were literally sitting there computing trajectories because there was just it was just more efficient to have a human being do it than than to have a machine do it. That is a, I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do. It's not that's not a trivial. Those are not trivial computations. You have to really be well versed in the theory. But you know, the practice of what you do changed. Like now, you know, people start sitting at terminals and typing code. But as the numbers show, like, it's not like women didn't know how to do that. They clearly did. And something happened around 1985 that, you know, and I suspect it was a sociological phenomenon, not a not any innovations in computer science that drove this. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is how few professions really remain stably, evenly divided between men and women. So, you know, you can have high status professions which have been mostly male historically and which women have started to increase their share of. And, you know, we can think of things like lawyers, for example, uh, not CEOs, like 95% of Fortune 500 CEOs are still men. But there are there are, there are a few. Dentists, I think, approach gender parity. And then you have um, uh, jobs that are lower status. And this really seems to be a, a very interesting and powerful thing that roughly they reach these tipping points. And suddenly what was a, a female occupation becomes a male occupation or a male occupation becomes a female occupation with profound sort of wage impacts. Obviously, if, if this shift were purely neutral, this would be um, odd and possibly problematic. But as it is, I think one of the most dangerous things about it for today is that we have, you know, increasing automation, which is reducing the number of jobs that don't require um, softer social skills. And then you have these visions of jobs or narratives surrounding jobs, which create this job lock so that you have people who are, you know, what sort of job retraining could there be if you are categorically opposed to taking a sort a certain set of jobs because you believe that in some cases that the jobs are beneath you, but I think to be sympathetic to the Jimmies of the world, in a lot of cases that the jobs are alien to you. You know, you have such an image of who the figure is who, who does that job that, you know, you you are really opposed to doing it. And that's actually what makes me so angry um, about this uh, Joan Williams piece, which we've mentioned before. And, you know, we mentioned it before positively. This is her, her piece, What So Many People Don't Get About the U.S. Working Class. And, you know, in it, the thing that really frustrates me is, is she says, 
talk about insensitivity. Last week, the New York Times published an article advising men with high school educations to take pink collar jobs. Elite men, you will notice, are not flooding into traditionally feminine work. To recommend that for white working class men just fuels class anger. Well, I call bullshit. I don't think that saying that um, men who were formerly coal miners should be nurses, which is a, a great job that I think pays more than the average coal miner and doesn't give you black lung, is insensitive. And I think that actually elite men are, in many times, especially in creative disciplines, taking what was traditionally feminine work and redefining it as high-status male jobs. So I think she's wrong on both fronts. And and worse, I don't even think her argument has a solution, because unlike our president, I don't think we can magically create hundreds of thousands of old-fashioned blue-collar jobs. I think that one of the important things here is destroying this notion of blue-collar and pink-collar and trying to just say, oh, people should take should reskill themselves or, or have original education that skills them and then get into jobs. And we should have a job focused creation system, but not jobs for particular genders. I, I will say that I, I think I have a lot more sympathy for her argument, I think, than you do. And the way that I read it is that, you know, there are definitely jobs that are well compensated. Nursing is one of them. Uh, but a lot of these service sector jobs are just like genuinely shitty. They're just genuinely bad jobs. They don't pay well. They have no benefits. So much of how you react to your change in status depends on like whether the change has come up or down. So if you uh, are you know going from nothing to having one of those jobs, then it seems great because, hey, you have a job and you have money now. Whereas if you are coming from a position where you used to have something that felt much better to you, but now you have this shitty job, you know, whatever, being a, a cashier or something like that, like... I can see that that is psychologically painful. I mean, that is genuinely and and and. Can I offer know. though that what makes a <clears throat> job in a factory, uh, on a line or a job in a mine not shitty is the union benefits. That's right. Not, That's right. Not any. Not, not anything, anything about, about that. the job. So if exactly. you if you were a cashier and you didn't have you know, uh, this schedule that was forced on you every day, but you had the right to actually know your schedule in advance and the right to a certain number of hours and the right to bathroom breaks and the right to a certain wage that was a living wage. Uh, all of a sudden, I think that job, you know, the parts of that job that don't have status are are purely the ones that are, you know, uh, gender applied or other things Right. Like I mean, all of that is true. But at the same time, when you already have something, right, this is like the endowment effect at work on a massive scale, where like when once you already have something and you had been accustomed to those benefits, like you yourself, if you are a worker who's like age 50 and maybe used to have one of these manufacturing jobs, you probably were not you like you didn't strike in 1930 fighting the Pinkertons or whatever. So you took those benefits and that union status, if you had it as kind of exogenously given, whereas like you don't like you don't have it now, right? You've lost it. So it's all true. Like all everything that you're saying is true, but it's one thing for it to be true and another thing for it to be sort of psychologically the, the way that it's perceived in terms of psychological impact is vastly different. Do you want to talk about that socialism for for white people uh, yeah, article then? Because I yeah. think that resonated with you, and I think this actually sort of is is very much on on your theme but, about look, you know, these people personally didn't fight for these benefits, so they just see the status shift. So, so this this article is uh, was posted. Um, a short version of it was posted on Forbes uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and uh, before that, it was uh, a longer piece on a blog called Political Orphans. It's by a guy named Chris Ladd who is kind of, I guess he's another former Republican uh, 
I don't know if he was an operative. He was like some kind of staffer or something like that. But anyway, uh, he is sort of like now this kind of voice in the wilderness, if you will. And the article... It's like the early church here. That's right. <laughs> uh, the article is called Socialism for White People. Um, it was written on November. It was posted on November uh, 28th of the previous year. And one of the it's a, it's a really long piece. and I think it's worth reading in full. But the basic thesis uh, of this piece uh, is that a lot of the benefits that the white middle class has sort of taken for granted as, you know, exogenously given, as I was saying, were actually kind of like a s- sort of socialism within a capitalist framework uh, directed specifically towards white people. So, you know, one example that um, that he offers is, you know, has been mentioned many times in many contexts is the home mortgage interest deduction. Like, that's a great example of something that, like, as a homeowner, I'm going to benefit, I already did benefit from it when I filed my taxes, right? But there is no particular reason that the government should be subsidizing, like, my home buying um, at the expense of like other stuff they could spend money on. Like I could, if I didn't have the home mortgage in- interest deduction, like I would still survive. That would, I mean, I would have less money, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be like, it wouldn't make the difference between night or day for me. And when that deduction and, was created, um, people of color couldn't take advantage of it. Exactly. Right. So, you know, because African-Americans, Hispanics were consistently discriminated against and sort of like kept out of the process of home ownership, they could not build wealth through home ownership the way that white people could. And so uh, there are many other examples in here. Um, I mean, I think health insurance is, of course, the yeah, big oh, one. The, yeah. other, the, the other big thing he talks about is uh, health insurance as obtained through your employer. So, right, if you have health insurance through your employer, your empl- th- that is essentially, in some sense, the government subsidizing your health insurance. But it's doing it in a way that gives uh, the employer tax breaks rather than just providing you with health insurance or services or whatever. And, and this ties into a kind of like a, a thing that we mentioned, I think, on our very first show, which was this concept of like the submerged state, that there are all these policy decisions that are operating on a kind of subconscious level, like you don't see them, but you just kind of assume that they're given by the circumstances like, oh, you know, I have a good job, which means I have health insurance. And that's just like how things are rather than as a consequence of a concrete set of decisions uh, policy decisions that were like made with specific like a specific purpose in mind. And so again, this is a situation where if you are a higher status white person, like you are much likely to have much more likely to have a job that provides you with health insurance and benefits and so on. Whereas if you're like lower economic lower socioeconomic status, if you are uh, if you are black, if you're Hispanic, like you are just less likely to have those jobs and so you benefit a lot less from them. And I think there's a, a, a really good point here about the ways in which policy design, I mean, we've talked about Obamacare before, and, you know, obviously, I think both Jerry and I really are strong supporters of Obamacare versus nothing. But I think that um, one of the things that Jerry in previous episodes highlighted is how bad it is when you only provide benefits on a means-tested basis to a very small number of people. Because you have this system where people who already had these sort of um, privileges of white socialism, as it were, or employer-based socialism, were not as affected by, say, Obamacare or by other benefits, um, whether they're housing benefits under Section 8 or whether they are childcare benefits or even the earned income tax credit. All of those things can be seen by the white middle class, white petite bourgeoisie, as basically 
um, entitlements going to people who don't deserve them or to other people, as opposed to a universal safety net, a universal set of, of entitlements that support everyone. And I think, obviously, the racial politics make it very tough in this country to have redistribution, period. But I, I certainly think that the design of those programs, which was done to both save money and incent work, so I, I'm not saying that these were like bad goals, but one of the things that they've done is they've sort of fueled this us against them. Um, it's not that Trump voters want a handout. They, in fact, think none of these handouts are going to them. They, they think they, they see government as actually um, not supporting them at all. Uh, I think that there, there's also a, a number of play pieces, including the Williams piece and uh, Chris Ladd's piece, both highlight this problem of like where where you have situations like coverage gaps that arise at the boundaries where you transition from essentially being eligible for benefits to being un- ineligible for benefits. And those boundaries are like really awfully sharp. A few dollars either way could make the difference between you like receiving subsidies and not receiving subsidies, which sounds absolutely crazy, like it's a bad design, but it, you know, that's what that's what it is. And and so you can be making not very much money and be totally ineligible and then, you know, see somebody who's making only slightly less than you who, you know, for example, is eligible for Medicaid. Like that is a that is a great way to cause resentment for the people lower on the totem pole. So you not only have you have all this resentment, and and I think just the magnitude of the problem might escape listeners. But why is this? Why is this such a big problem? Well, here's the deal: in 2015, and this is the latest data, the rate for college-educated men of participation in the labor force was 94 percent. Okay, so 94 out of 100 people who had a college degree, uh, I believe this is between 25 and 54, um, were in the labor force. The rate for men with a high school degree or less was 83%. So that means one in six men with a high school degree or, or, or less was not just out of work, they weren't even participating in the labor force. And what's horrifying about, about this is that of those one in six men, 40% report being in pain in physical pain. And, th- and this is exactly, so if you want to know why the opioid epidemic is killing so many people, you can start right here. You have men who, again, are out of the labor force, who feel, because of this narrative that they, uh, many of them, I believe, have bought into, that their failure to participate in the labor force means their sort of failure as men in many ways. It's, it's not just not having a job, but it's sort of, sort of really profound failure of purpose. They are not very marriageable, you know, typically their unions may produce children, but they, they are not viewed as appropriate marriage ma- material by, by women in their social class. And so you have unmarried men who are out of the labor force, who are in deep pain, uh, many of whom are participating in criminal activity. So it's, it's a deep human crisis. It's a health crisis. It's sort of a social crisis. And what's worse, and this is sort of the intergenerational aspect of this that I, that I think is also bad, when you look at the children of people where you have a, a single parent household, um, typically a, a, a mother bringing up the kids. So, you know, if, if these people go on, they, they father a child they, and they're not married, the girls do fine. If you, if you look at single parent households versus um, two parent households, the, the girls who grow up do, do fine. There's, there's not a significant impact. But for the boys, it's like another generation. You have significantly more labor force detachment and significantly more incarceration. So one of the things that I'm really concerned about is I I actually think this patriarchal narrative is not just 
forcing a number of men into job lock and into um, not taking opportunities that are available to them and, and really causing them profound pain, as we can see with those uh, addiction numbers and, and physical pain numbers, it's also hurting another generation after them. So I think this is like actually like maybe one of the biggest social crises that we have going on today. With regard to things like the marriage market, I just wanted to say that the work that we're implicitly citing here, and which I'm going to just cite explicitly now, is the work of an economist at MIT by the name of David Autor, who has done a lot, of, like he's studied sort of how, you know, opening up trade with China has affected communities, uh, manufacturing communities in the Midwest. And he's also studied uh, kind of this, the, the effects on labor participation on the marriage market. I hate that phrase. <laughs> it sounds so... <laughs> So inhuman, but anyway, but that's that's the econo speak for uh, for it. Um, so there's a there's a number of different a number of different papers that we're sort of pulling from. Uh, the, the marriage paper is one of them, and um, there are a couple other ones which we'll also put in the show notes. Right, and I, I think one of the um, important features of the order to draw draw out is when they initially started looking at this. Um, I think one of the papers he writes is with another economist, Melanie Wasserman. They were like, well, maybe a lot of men have dropped out because uh, like women in the 60s and 70s, there's a, a spouse at home who's the primary breadwinner. It's just this time it's the female spouse is the primary breadwinner and the, the man staying at home. And this turns out to be responsible for like 1% of the total decline in male workforce participation. It, it's completely insignificant. Like the men who have dropped out of the labor force are not attached to working partners. It is really, and it speaks exactly to that. I, I also agree it's a terrible term, but marriage market. Um, they're because of gendered expectations about from both men and women about what it means to be a provider. It is incredibly hard for a man not in the labor force to find a partner um, and to to enter a stable marriage with them. And again, that doesn't mean that they're not reproducing. And so it, it creates a, a real family dysfunction. Um, and I think that that's a really sort of profound tragedy because there's no reason, of course, that a man who is not participating in the labor market can't be a wonderful father or couldn't participate in that. Um, and I think that's another example of the way that patriarchy um, hurts men as well as women. To me, this is sort of, I was on the way, on the way here on, on the train, I was uh, doing, doing some additional reading and the person who came to my mind as kind of capturing uh, a lot of what is going on here was a guy by the name of Eric Fromm. Who is uh, who was a uh, sort of psychologist, following in the footsteps of like a number of people, you know, in terms of his uh, social critique, among them sort of Marx and Weber and and Freud, I guess as well. But Fromm wrote this book called um, Escape from Freedom uh, because he was trying to understand sort of the psychological factors that led to the rise of fascism in Germany in the 1930s. And so, so what what he what he pinpointed was that there used to be a syst- kind of a system of social relations that prescribed that everybody kind of had a specific place within that system. And what happened over the course of, you know, roughly 500 years since we sort of think of capitalism as having been introduced is that those social relations have dissolved. I mean, this is not his new, I- new idea. This is something that, you know, Marx noted, that Weber noted. Uh, it's, you know, a process that Weber called uh, disenchantment. Hmm. So the world used to be enchanted to us and now it is no longer, you know, industrialization has come along, it rationalized it. And from one perspective, that's really great. If you are the kind of person who's in a position to take advantage of a rationalized, demystified world, like you have done super well. Um, Or just in a position to be taken less advantage of than in a derationalized world. That's right. Yeah. 
this is a great piece from uh, a great little excerpt from Fromm's uh, Escape from Freedom, where he's talking about the transformative aspect of capitalism. He says, in capitalism, economic activity, success, material gains become ends in themselves. It becomes man's fate to contribute to the growth of the economic system to amass capital, not for the purposes of his own happiness or salvation, but as an end in itself. Man became a cog in the vast economic machine, an important one if he had much capital, an insignificant one if he had none, but always a cog to serve a purpose outside of himself. This readiness for submission of oneself to, pre, to extra human ends was actually prepared by Protestantism. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about um, the theology of Luther and Calvin, which becomes less interesting uh, for this particular purpose. But I think that's kind of like a very nice encapsulation in some ways of like what has happened, which is that for many decades, we've had this sort of public narrative that capitalism, free markets are like great. They're, getting, they're like the only way of organizing stuff. And your value as a human being is determined by like what you can fetch on the market. And so for a lot of people, as long as they had secure positions within that framework, that seemed like it's, it was like super great, right? It was, it was like the just war, the world is just, uh, the good things that I have are, are, uh, are because I've earned them. I'm justified in having them. Everything's wonderful. All of a sudden the bottom falls out of that picture. Now you no longer have the good things that you used to have. So, but you're still like laboring under this impression that you've been given that your only, your sole source of worth is like what you can get on the market. And it turns out that you can't get anything. Um, uh, yeah. And, and, the, and the final piece of this puzzle is that on top of all of this, like all these social relations, which you thought were kind of like basic fundamentals of your, like of your worldview are now like also dissolving underneath you. So the notion of like, did, you know, this kind of distinction between like what male labor and female labor, like uh, racial hierarchies, all these things, like it's not that they're like actually dissolving, but they're like clearly being challenged uh, from every corner by, by like the society. The society no longer tolerates them, justly so, I would say. But if you are like existing at the intersection of the, these two secular movements, that's like, I mean, like you're, psycho you're being psychologically battered in some way. And, and I think it's really important to note here that in, in Jerry's narrative, which I agree entirely with, um, you might ask, okay, well, what about women? And I think there's a really fascinating thing. Why were there so many female Trump voters? Well, if you are not defined by your market production, but by taking care of a family, by being the owner of the household, even as the patriarchal breadwinner is the, the owner of the um, economic production, then you could be completely content with the system because you have a purpose. You have this purpose in the home, which is to raise your children and be a homemaker. And that's been taken away by the fact that you now have to do this type of labor, which is economic labor, which is not rewarding. And you frankly see other people who have time to devote to this labor that you would like to, you know, uh, wealthier mothers, for example, or wealthier people being able to do it. And I and I and instead, you have to work one of these possibly like sort of uh, very low value service jobs. So I think there's actually a really important piece here, too, that even though women's liberation and reversing that gender hierarchy was very important, there's another piece which exactly ties into this feeling of alienation, which is I think that for women who felt protected by that patriarchal system and also given purpose by their duties, their duties as, as mothers and wives, the um, lack of 
ability to generate um, meaning in that way and f- and for the loss of a male partner who could economically support a family is is deeply threatening. So I think when you see as, as much as there were male Trump voters who were saying, well, I want my coal mine jobs back, I think there were female Trump voters who were saying, I'm not explicitly for a type of hierarchy, but what I am for is to go back to a place where I had a special value of difference in my emotional labor. Uh, it wasn't just something that I had to do on top of the shitty service job I have to work. There, There's a really uh, powerful sense in which, you know, nostalgia for something that you uh, that you once had, and, or you, you you imagine that your parents once had, sort of, it, you know, it begins to you, you you see it through rose-colored glasses, right? I mean, you don't you don't see the story like it, this is the same this is the same thing as when you know you the benefits that you used to have were kind of like handed down from above, and you didn't like necessarily have to do anything to get them, and and now you don't have them. Well, the same thing happened happens with when retrospecting back to like, you know, oh, what was life like in 1950s? Well, you know, like if you are of a particular, if you have this particular romantic view of it, then you might say, okay, well, there was these, this division between the the home and the workplace and the women's place was in the home. And, you know, she was like master of, or mistress, I guess, of, of the, that domain. But you, you're not, you're obviously kind of like looking at it through a way that obscures like the reasons why we have come to a, a place where that has become less and like less and less the case. Like we have come to a more, though not sufficiently, egalitarian place in our gender relations. But there's a reason for that. Like it wasn't just it didn't just spring up of like it, it, that you know whatever communists snuck into our uh, universities mm-hmm. and like made it so made it so that uh, you know women killed their husbands and became lesbians, as Pat Robertson would have it. Right. I mean, I, I think one of the real problems, actually, is that feminism hasn't gone far enough. So, I mean, I think that um, credit credit for this theory, too, should go to um, Peter Frace, who's an editor at Jacobin. And, you know, he, he wrote um, this book for Futures, Life After Capitalism. In, in the book, early on in the book, he talks about Vonnegut's first novel, Vonnegut's first novel, Player Piano. And Player Piano is a really interesting book because... Player Piano is about this factory manager who basically is being replaced by robots, and this is horrible. But Frace notes something interesting about this. It's like, shouldn't this actually be freeing from one perspective? Like, why is this particular labor important? And more important, the the protagonist of this book, this guy Paul Proteus, which is a 50s sci-fi name if ever there was one, his wife is constantly sort of giving him advice on how to do things while taking care of the home. She seems perfectly actually happy and actualized as as a person without a factory job. And I think there's something really profoundly sad about the limits to which feminism went and then and then did not end up succeeding and, and why there why of course there's still room for feminism to succeed. Because I think that um really men deriving value and purpose from the type of emotional labor and support that women have always been expected to do in an uncompensated way, but also have derived value from, is I think really a profound shift that would um, actualize a lot of purpose for for both non-working men and also allow men to to conceive of a broader range of jobs as being uh, purposeful and within their ambit. And I think that really, you know, it's not just about freeing types of work for female labor or making men do more housework, I think really like a profound feminism is actually uh, uh, like 
a, a man being a, as 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 involved as he could be and proud as he could be of the the type of reproductive labor that um, women have done uh, again without compensation for for thousands of years. I also want to push even beyond that and offer up sort of my own critique of um, a lot of this, and I'll preface it by saying that you know I think that in just like in society in general, we have uh, for. I think maybe reasons that were sound at one point, we have this cult of work. And this is actually, you know, in in the Soviet Union, you had, you know, these Stakhanovite uh, clubs or whatever. And the whole point was to exalt, you know, this guy who produced whatever, 5,000 tons of steel when he only needed to produce 3,000 or whatever the fuck it was. And in sort of our present day society, it's like, again, it's, it's this idea that like work is... Work is everything. It's like not it's not just a thing that you do. It's a kind of a moral and spiritual fulfillment. And I see a lot of these arguments being leveled against, for example, universal basic income is that it will undermine this notion of like work as like an intrinsically good thing. My my perspective is that like work actually for the most part is kind of shitty unless you I mean, which is not to say that like, you know, fulfilling types of work don't exist. But in general, you're responsible to an entity that really doesn't care about you. You're another cog in the machine, whether you are a miner or a software developer or whatever, like chances are you're just you're just working pretty hard to make somebody an extra penny. If you're like if you work for Google, like you are you're basically working really hard. Maybe you're doing some interesting stuff, but you're working really hard to get Google like an extra like fraction of a cent on every piece of advertising that it sells. Like these are like like capitalism and and communism too. Like these entities like don't care about you as a person. They they do not. And and so this cult of like that work has to be your everything. Work has to be this like thing that you should love and want to do, I think it's bogus. Like, we should be striving toward, you know, whatever, fully automated luxury communism, uh, as they say on the internet. But um, if if machines can do a certain, like, certain labor, like, why should we have people do them? Like, maybe we just don't need people to work that much. I, I mean, I, so I, I support that very much, although one of the reasons that I am skeptical of UBI as it might be implemented now is precisely because I think we as a society need better ways of describing purposeful non-work and giving people the ability to have purposeful non-work. Because one of my great worries is that people who receive an income stipend but don't have work will have negative health consequences. And I think actually you can look at this. I think there's been data in um, Germany of, of if someone who is unemployed reaches the retirement age, their health improves. It, it's like bizarre, but it's actually because retired is a category that it's okay to be, and like there are things to do and activities to do, and it's an it's acceptable right. thing. Whereas if you are just out of work, even in a, in a high social welfare state, um, there there comes with it a type of stigma. And so I think that one of the real things as we move to luxury automated robot gay communism, the the sort of like desired future, will I think be really trying to make sure that we, you know, I I don't want a world of just, um, you know, uh, heroin addicts and Walmart greeters while robots do all the work. Like that seems- Oh yeah, I mean, I don't want that world either, but I'm saying that, you know, part of of getting to like a better world, I think has to do with breaking this conditioning that your, like that you are your labor, right? You are, because you're not, you're you're just, uh, and in, 
a world of 7 billion people and a country of 300 million people, like you can't possibly be irreplaceable. Nobody is irreplaceable. Yeah. Like that's, that's the real moral here. Right. And so this, this notion that like you are identified with the stuff that you can do, I think is really deleterious. Like it conditions people to view themselves as disposable commodities rather than as like human beings. And so let's, let's imagine this egalitarian future. I, I think, uh, again, to point out another reason for it, there was another article in the Times recently noting that support, especially among male millennials, for um, egalitarian views about the household and who should who should do what in the household has been dropping, um, for, which is very frightening. But again, I think points back to the sort of deep economic anxiety. So, you know, how, how do we push forward models of this? I, I think, so maybe a UBI is one way forward and one way forward that might be necessary, especially if we automate things like driving. Like maybe the job loss will just happen faster than we can sort of make jobs more permeable and, and less identified. But I'd like to say, like, if we don't have the, the robot wave come, I think that something we can really do is actually starting very early. I, you know, I used to be more skeptical of this, but stop coding certain employments with genders. Like we, we do this very, very strongly in terms yeah, of absolutely. costumes, children, children's like television and shows and narratives around it. And I think it's actually re like, I used to be like, ah, well, who, it's just a story. But now I'm like, oh, I think this is actually profoundly bad and damaging. Yeah. And I, I think one of the great ironies of this is that like, you know, because this is something that is much more pronounced for people who didn't go to college versus people who did, right? There's this this idea that like, oh, you know, all these kids they go to college and they they learn them their women's studies or whatever, and they're this like feminism tells them again to like that men all, can be nurses that, too, yeah, that men can be nurses too, right? And then, but but then you think about it and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what happens, right? You if you are raised in an environment and you attend like an educational institution where you're told that actually like these things don't matter they're just arbitrary distinctions and you can like just do whatever you think is necessary to do or that you want to do or, or what have you then like you're going to be you know if you take that message to heart which i think that you people ought to you're going to be a lot more relaxed about the kind of work that you can see yourself doing whereas if you have no exposure to those kinds of ideas uh, by the time that you come to come to them, you view them with suspicion because they don't comport with the environment that you've been raised in or the education that you have received. And ironically, those are the people who would like benefit the most probably from not being taught that. Right. And I mean, this is actually, you know, 60% of Americans don't have a college degree. It's more than 60% actually. So even if college was the perfect sort of Pat Robertson breeding ground of, you know, uh, right, turning turning everyone into uh, gender egalitarians. We've we've been uh, harsh on this show about the media before, but I, I think there actually kind of is a role for the media to try and model away from classic gender stereotypes. And, you know, for every person who's offended by the fact that oh, you know, whatever, this TV show shows a gay couple, there are like 60 TV shows where the female roles are, you know, uh, derogatory or tarted up, where like, you know, the um, occupations are are traditionally gender classed or where like, I mean, all of CBS is this way. And so I, I may be going back on my thing where politicians shouldn't attack CBS. I, I still think they probably shouldn't because it's, it's a bad political move. But I do think the media does have a responsibility to try and, you know, maybe not have every girl be a smart princess. Maybe they could just be a smart doctor. Or maybe that there could be men who were nurses, men who were teachers, 
Um, I, you know, I, that's actually probably as important as as the uh, the females in, in traditionally male roles. I would actually start even with a more basic uh, point, which is uh, this idea that there's this thing called a pink collar job. Right? I mean, we talked about like eliminating this distinction, but it's really like if you when you read these articles and they you know, keep on talking they, about they, it, yeah, they, they talk about these like pink collar jobs, which I kind of understand from one point because you're trying to be descriptive, but at the same time, like you can be descriptive by saying these are jobs predominantly held by women without coding the job itself as something that is like fundamentally feminine, right? Right. Like genetic counselor and occupational therapy aides, are those uh, are those gendered occupations? I mean, it turns out they are because actually they're 90% female, each of those. But there's no reason that an occupational therapy aide or a genetic counselor needs to be a female job or described as a pink collar job. I think a lot of these things, like you, if you weren't conditioned to think of them that way, like you would just, they, it wouldn't occur to you to necessarily say, like, I didn't know any of these numbers, for example, about occupational therapy, right? And there was a time when like I had knee surgery and then I needed like PT and I went, went, went to PT and I had, depending on when, what day I came in, I had either like a woman therapist or a male therapist. And it was like, it didn't like, it didn't make any difference. I mean, I was just there for like, I'm there for PT. They're there to help me get better. And like, that's just how this works, right? It doesn't matter what the gender of this person is. Like, if you're not trained to think about this in, in, ter- in gender terms, then again, like you might end up as, you know, somebody who reclassifies from like a like a hard labor job to like doing a PT because just that's where the economic opportunity is as opposed to. Yeah, as opposed to like thinking that that is not something that you that is like consistent with your status as a, as a man. And and this is somewhat selfish because I'm I'm actually having a, a kid later this year. But I think that there's a really important thing that's being lost in the maternity leave debate which is that we absolutely need maternity leave. It's a shame that in America, unlike literally every other country on earth, there's no maternity leave. But there really needs to be paternity leave too. And in part, this is to remove the stigma for women who take time off in the office and the sort of consequences that that can have in, especially in, um, uh, you know, salaried jobs. Um, But it also is to increase and, and, Ideally, you would have these sort of use it or lose it type leaves for paternity to make men participate more in that sphere and derive more of their social status from participating in the, in the act of raising children. Not only will it be good for the children, because again, you know, the intergenerational prospects uh, are, are pretty bad if fathers aren't involved, especially for boys. Um, but it also starts to shift this at the most basic role, this sort of basic unit of labor, which is non-capital labor, which is this sort of reproductive and family labor, can't be solely a, uh, a you know, assigned to women to do. Um, it, it has to, I think, you know, it's not just redefining, again, wage work, but I think really fundamental to have uh, men be very fully involved in that. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot of actually about the, you know, the gender angle, but there's, uh, you know, as the name of the theory might suggest, there's also a racial angle involved in this. And the, you know, the idea was that certain kinds of work are hard, but white men won't do them because they are sort of viewed as work for like subalterns, you know, in some sense. Again, this is a problem that is sort of of kind of the deeply rooted racism of like American society in general, which is that, you know, for a long time, we, we've had this, uh, we were living with a racial hierarchy that that dictates that certain kinds of, of labor are like, you know, to be done by, by black men, by Hispanic men, because, you know, so a great example here is like farm work, 
lot of people wax nostalgic about the days of like yeoman farmers or whatever. But the reality of it is that, you know, farm work is done primarily by Hispanic men, many of them undocumented. And it is like really horrendous backbreaking labor. I mean, literally backbreaking in many cases. There's an angle, there's a racial angle to this. There's also an angle that you can kind of look at and you can understand, like, again, if you are in your 50s, like, you you can't do this kind of work. And even right. if you could, like, you would not want to. And despite the fact that a lot of the people who are actually doing this work are, like, no more physically in physically good shape than, than like, that same factory worker. I, you know, I think that's something that can be done or should, you know, should be done in any case, but will maybe help alleviate this problem is just like, re- I mean, making that work just better and less soul crushing. Well, stuff. right. No. And this was exactly the point of actually the United Farm Workers, right? I mean, I think there was sort of an, an interesting thing with, with Cesar Chavez and a lot of the UFW work, which was they were not against automation because automation there directly made the destruction of the bodies of their union members less less common um, and also increased wages because as automated labor came in to do certain types of picking, for example, it, in, it you know, you there were more skilled things that other people could do, although it may have decreased the total amount of work. And I think that our system of white supremacy permits the destruction of brown and black bodies in this particular way. And it also gives lie to the idea that this is just about hard work because those jobs are incredibly hard. And a lot of the people we're, we're talking about here who value the dignity of labor don't view those jobs as dignified, even though they're very difficult. And I think about, you know, my grandfather. So my um, mother is Japanese American. Um, her father was born in this country. He was interned in a camp in uh, World War during World War II. And he became a gardener. And he was a gardener uh, until he retired um, in in uh, the central California coast. And, you know, one of the things about it is that there was never, of course, a white man who worked on my Ojichan's gardening crew, you know, and like the, he was a Republican. Of right. Not, not only not only would he be doing like not white man's work, but he'd be subordinate to a not white man. Right. Right. And I, I mean, I think there's just something really profound about like, you know, I can think of few people who worked harder than my Ojichan, and yet you know, one of the things that really actually made me probably too angry, but about these sort of initial theories about sort of, you know, hardworking, white working class folks, not that they're not hardworking and not that to go back to Jimmy in our opening example, I don't understand that narrative and the power of that narrative, but that narrative subordinates a lot of humans and that narrative creates for itself a type of status um, off of the really oppressed labor of a lot of other people. And, and you know, maybe, maybe, look, that's consonant with a lot of capitalism, but I think it 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 is not a, um, you know, that romantic version of the 50s was sitting on the backs of, of a lot of non-white bodies. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, as a, as a question of, right, as a question of policy, as a question of, you know, we don't really have what one might call an industrial policy in this country, but we probably ought to. Uh, but if we're going to talk about things like farm policy. I think, you know, we have to really take seriously the question of the way that the people who do these jobs are actually treated because uh, people who are in, who, who are in farm work, who are doing janitorial labor. I mean, so often they have like no, they have no benefits, they have poor pay and they have no recourse, right? Like the labor agencies typically don't really prosecute abuses to the extent that they ought to. And, 
Sometimes they don't even have to report. One of the first acts of the Trump Republican Congress That's right. was to repeal just a reporting requirement about companies that had maimed or killed their workers, often undocumented workers. Just a reporting. That's the type of regulation that Republicans thinks is just constraining business, is telling OSHA when you've killed someone. And and it's outrageous. And, right. And, and, and you can, like, you know... From kind of like being aware of of all that, you can kind of imagine why any person would be sort of wary of taking on that kind of job because like you have you have no protections. And and so, you know, we should address those issues because, you know, because they're issues of justice and because they will like prevent people from being injured and killed. Uh, but hopefully, like, you know, in doing so, one one hopes that it would raise the profile of those of those jobs and like make them like actual living jobs that you can have. And maybe what that might translate to is um, more people being willing to do those jobs if they're better compensated, if their safety is accounted for. I think that's a secondary concern. The primary concern is is the concern for the people who are actually doing them right now. But maybe that will be a salutary knock on effect. I think that's absolutely right. So against certain types of employer-based socialism and for more broad protections that make jobs safer and also jobs cross um, these sort of racial and gender ghettos that they've been put into. Okay, well, I think that wraps it up for, for today, right? Yeah, or- absolutely. No, si se puede. I think so. <laughs> um, thanks, Jerry, and thanks, Greg, Thank as you, Greg. always. So in in two weeks on our next show, we're going to talk maybe in greater detail about um, industrial policy and and sort of what kinds of approaches can be uh, can be used to solve the problems that we talked about on this episode. And we hope to maybe have uh, some special guests with us who uh, might shed light on that.